With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, it's Brendan here. Before we get into my discussion with Michael Schellenberger about COP26 and his new book, San Francisco, I just wanted to give you a quick reminder about Spiked Supporters. Spike Supporters is our online hub for regular donors. If you become a supporter today, you'll be helping Spike to keep growing and to reach more and more people. And for your help, you'll get some exclusive perks in return. Supporters can leave comments on articles, get free or discounted tickets to events, and get discounts on all items in our shop. So to find out more about becoming a Spike supporter, just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. The elites are completely delusional about what's happening in terms of climate change. Meanwhile, they fly in 400 private jets, a record number of private jets. It's all of the douchebags, you know, in a single conference. (laughs) You know, I kind of go, are they really that tone deaf or are they actually doing, is this a kind of performance of performing their superiority? There's so much pageantry here, a self-celebration, the narcissism, the histrionics. And of course, all of their agendas falling apart around them. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by returning guest Michael Schellenberger. Michael is a commentator and author based in the US. He has written extensively on environmentalism and he has played a key role in challenging the more apocalyptic claims of climate change change activists. He co-founded the Breakthrough Institute, an environmental research center based in California, and he later set up Environmental Progress, which argues, among other things, for the embrace of nuclear power as a clean source of energy. Michael was once named by Time magazine as a hero of the environment. He is the author of Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Harms Us All, and his new book is San Francisco. So, Michael, let's kick off by talking about your new book, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, which apart from anything else is one of the best book titles I've heard for a very long time. And in in this book, you essentially argue that when progressives take over cities, chaos ensues and all sorts of things go horribly wrong. Uh, And you talk a lot about San Francisco and uh, about California more broadly. So can you just explain to our listeners, especially some of our listeners who are not in the United States, just how bad things get when cities are taken over by progressives? What kind of problems are caused by that? Well, sure. Well, so, yeah, I mean, somebody coming to visit San Francisco or Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland, and then really it's it's international. Um, Vancouver, you know, um, uh, Glasgow is, has, is having a really bad open drug scene. So it's really... 
what you're what people would see is what people would call homeless um the vast majority of whom are suffering from uh severe drug addiction many suffer from untreated mental illness some people think that all addiction is a kind of mental illness and some people think that all addiction results from untreated mental illness regardless of those the answer to those questions you know it's just incredibly shocking scenes of people very sick lying on sidewalks passed out having just smoked fentanyl or injected heroin or smoked meth or or the other versions of those you can smoke and inject these very intoxicating very addictive very unhealthy drugs openly out of a kind of you know and there's I go into you know why is that <laughs> you know, we spend, you know, we're a very rich city. We're not, I've been all over the world. You know, I've described in, my, in Apocalypse Never, you know, being in the Congo, being in Uganda, Brazil, Nicaragua, Mexico, um, Indonesia. I've seen slums everywhere. Um, this is the richest city in the world. It has a huge number of billionaires. So what was going on? I mean, it's my hometown. I love it. So I, that's what I wanted to figure out. That's why I wrote the book. It's funny you, sh- you should kick off like that because that's one thing I've tried to describe to friends of mine who have not been to San Francisco or to Los Angeles. And I've been to both of those cities. I love them both in different ways. I particularly like San Francisco. I think it's an amazing place. But the way you describe it is actually very apt and very accurate. And when I've described some of the scenes I saw when I was in those cities, friends of mine in London have just refused to believe what I'm telling them. So if I tell them that in Los Angeles, you can walk down a street and there will be rows and rows of tents, people living in tents, that's where they live. And sometimes they will be sat in front of the tent, shooting up or taking drugs or engaging in colorful arguments or whatever else it might be. Or when I told them that in San Francisco, I've seen people uh, defecating in the street and also doing drugs in places that are very close to the high streets or the the fashionable streets. And there's a kind of often a, a, a lack of distinction between those areas. People I know in the UK often refuse to believe that that's the situation, but that is the situation. And as you say, it's it's really striking that in cities that are incredibly wealthy, you would have those kinds of living standards and those kinds of situations. So just to bring in the subtitle of your book, which is Why Progressives Do This to Cities, could you just give us an outline and then we can kind of dig down into it in a bit more depth? What is it, do you think, in a nutshell, what do you think it is about progressive ideas or progressive policies which lead to those kinds of living conditions? In a word, victimology. Right. Just the ideology of victimhood. It basically consists of two parts. The first is that you can divide the world into victims and, and oppressors. All people can fit into one of those two categories. And there's obviously some, you know, words like fellow travelers or, or allies. But, you know, that it's an ideology that kind of categorizes people in that way. So all African-Americans are victims under victim ideology. So it's racist, I think. It's obviously because you're categorizing, you're making sweeping statements about the essence of whole groups of people based on, you know, super arbitrary criteria often. Um, so, you know, it just, it is what it is. I mean, it's probably very familiar to you and your readers. The second part of that, of course, is that people that are so-called victims 
are frozen in that state. Yeah. So it's not a moment in time. In the traditional hero's journey story, which some people think is the archetypal story of Western civilization, victimization is a moment. It's the moment of being tortured and victimized before you emerge as a powerful individual and, and hero of your own story, whatever it might be. And so, and then it does, I guess there's three parts. <laughs> the third part is that it, it suggests that victims are sacred to which only things can be given and nothing asked. So, and we see this in parenting increasingly, but it's very Rousseauian. It's very much the idea that, that any amount of, of coercion or even reciprocity is a continuation or a form of victimization. Absolutely. I want to ask you a few more questions on the victimology issue and the relationship between the politics of victimhood and law and order and the tension between those things, which can cause problems in cities. But first, I want to ask you about one of the interesting um, contradictions that you raise in the book, which is that some of the places that you're talking about often have high levels of public spending, but very poor results to show for it. The state of California, for example, which has a very high level of income tax, which spends a lot of money on the homelessness problem. And yet San Francisco is without question the worst city I've ever visited in terms of homelessness. And you you give other examples where often progressives will come to power saying, we're going to do something about the drug problem. We're going to do something about the mental health crisis. We're going to do something about the awful situation that significant numbers of people live on the streets, don't have their own home. They come to power with these pronouncements, with large plans for public spending, but often the results are worse than they would be in a city that is not necessarily run by progressives or not necessarily seen as a kind of left-wing city. So how do you explain that tension between the high levels of public spending, the huge pronouncements that are made by these leaders, and the results which which are often just staggeringly bad? Yeah, I mean, um, so the people that believe that really childish victim ideology that I just described are literally in charge. And so they are the ones that are saying, we're going to spend $100,000 a year per so-called homeless person to sleep in a tent, be injected with drugs every four hours, and we will provide everything to them. Mm. The needles with which to shoot, cash with which to buy drugs, and apartments within which to use the drugs. And when you don't want to use the apartment because you're so mentally ill that you just want to store your garbage in your apartment... They'll also then let you sleep on the street. It's amazing. So the idea is that everything the addict wants, the addict should get. It's the normal, the traditional view, the view that's been around for 120 years in addiction treatment is you recognize when the addiction is talking in the same way that you recognize when the the psychiatrist recognize when it's the mental illness talking. If I say, you know, Brendan, I've just had a conversation with the UFOs and I've been talking to the CIA spying on me and they're telling me that I need to save all of us here. You know that that's crazy talk. But yet the highest level health officials in San Francisco, when addicts say, I need to sleep here and shoot and smoke fentanyl and shoot meth all day, the highest ranking health department officials in the city say, okay, and they fund it. And it's expensive. It's very expensive. It requires, I mean, I took a photograph. They hide it, what they call the safe sleeping site. They hide it, but it's right in front of City Hall. 
And so I've taken many photos. And in some ways, it looks like a medical experiment. It looks like because it's on pavement, of course, because you're right there downtown. This is City Hall. <laughs> I mean, um, it, I think it's it, this is why this my book is really going after bigger prey in a sense. It's going after really the radical left's attack on Western civilization and the pillars of civilization. And it's arrived at, at city government now. It's arrived, it, it occupies city government. There is corruption. There's financial corruption. We call a homeless industrial complex. Obviously, a lot of people making a lot of money at you know professional uh, managerial class. The mid-level and senior people obviously make a lot of money, and they get to live in San Francisco, and they get to feel morally superior. But it's fundamentally a cult. It's religious. It's it's they're in the grip of. They insist. You know, part of it they insist that the people on the street are just poor. Yeah, that's it. They're just poor. And if you point out that actually they are all seriously addicted, and not only that, but are the addiction is the reason they're living on the street because they've overstayed their welcome with family and friends, and they can't work, and they don't work, and they steal to feed their habit. When you point that out, you get a kind of, oh, Michael, you know, who are you to judge? Yeah. You live in a fine house and you drink alcohol, which, I mean, actually, I don't, but, <laughs> but you, you know, you're a hypocrite. You know, and who are you? These are poor people and they're, you know, they're suffering from structural racism and oppression. And you're just a terrible person for even saying it. And then, as I discovered and described, they defend the ideology very fiercely. So they even then say they just go further and say, Michael, you are going to foment violence against people on the street. The result of your writing, the questions you're asking, literally. <laughs> yeah. That kind of question I was told by a Democratic Socialist former member of the state of the city council was like, Michael, those questions increase violence against people on the street. It's absolutely bonkers and absurd. But of course we see it with the trans issue. We see it on a bunch of issues, but they defend it and it works. You know, most professional managerial class people, including journalists like myself who live a, you know, a nice life. And we don't, you don't have to put up with that. You know, you don't have to put up with people out there publicly saying Michael wants to Michael wants to increase violence against poor people. Most people don't want to deal with it. And so that's how the system protects itself and maintains itself. On the question of drugs and the taking of drugs and the public consumption of drugs, which I've wit witnessed in some of the cities that you talk about in your book, and also in cities in the UK as well, and also in cities in Ireland, I've seen this kind of stuff. How deeply does that problem run? So, for example, in some cities in the UK and Ireland, uh, which I'm more familiar with, particularly a city like Dublin, there's a place in Dublin where I stay when I visit Dublin, and it's near a methadone clinic. And um, it's a nice part of town, but it happens to be near a methadone clinic. And what you mm -hmm. have in those kinds of clinics is the state-sponsored consumption of drugs. So this is presented as an attempt to get addicts off heroin to right. to stop them from taking illegal drugs or illegally bought drugs by replacing it with something that the state provides for them and you will often see queues lines of people waiting to right. get their their weekly hit or their daily hit from the government essentially is it a similar situation in the west coast of the US and other parts of the US where the government where local government essentially green lights the consumption of drugs or is it slightly different in the sense that it's still illegally sourced drugs but they are taken in a very open way that people tend to turn to turn a blind eye to well you got it i mean you're describing in dublin where the progressives want to take it here 
So that is the top demand of progressives right now is for safe, what they call safe consumption sites. Everything that is they say about this is all sort of propaganda language. So I think it's more better. I think it's better to call them drug injection sites so that we don't put the safe label on it because already that's describing that's a propaganda word. Yeah. Um, maybe they're safe. I mean, here's what I'll let me let me sort of describe what I think we should do for a second because it includes that particular strategy. So I propose a modified Dutch model. Um, the Netherlands does a really good job, I think, on this issue. They have problems, but they seem to do better as well as, if not better than any other country in Europe and certainly Asia. But it's also a, a city I chose, Amsterdam, because I think San Franciscans and progressives admire Amsterdam. Mm. They know it's a lovely little city. They love the bikes. I was strategically choosing Amsterdam to appeal to liberals um, over if I had chose New York, you know, or Miami, we're very snobby in the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, it's full of intellectuals and professionals and, you know, just the woke class. That's who we are, right? So let me explain how I would, how our, what the Dutch model looks like. I think it gets to that, which is basically you don't let people camp on the street. You don't let people defecate on the street. You don't let people shoot drugs, use hard drugs on the street. You don't let people suffer addiction that's causing them to break laws. You enforce laws, full stop. When you do that, you end up with a lot of addicts that you need to do something with. They have a choice to make. They can go to jail for their crimes or they can go to rehab. It's just that simple. Um, we'd rather they go to rehab because that addresses the problem. If they're suffering an underlying psychiatric illness, they go to the hospital for a little bit and then they probably get some kind of group home. It's not that complicated in the actual delivery of the, of the healthcare service itself. If you're a 25-year-old addict on the street, you should probably, you know, unless there's some schizophrenia or something really serious and you're just kind of, or part, you're kind of maybe prone a little bit to depression, your life wasn't going great and you got addicted to heroin and now you're smoking fentanyl and shooting meth at night to stay awake or whatever it is to break the law, get your courage up. We should, we should get you into rehab and get your, get you a job and get your life going. You know, that's different than a 50 or 60 year old who's been doing heroin for 30 years. You know, in the Amsterdam and Europe are very practical. You, you, they did methadone, as you mentioned, methadone clinics, but we also now have, um, a suboxone, which is even more, uh, effective for many addicts. So then does, does Netherlands provide heroin for people, for a small group of people? It does, but it's 150 or fewer addicts. Okay. We have, probably 100,000 street addicts in California. If you did that, you'd have 100,000 people are giving heroin to rather than actually trying to see if you can get them off, you know, after they break the law, which is what they did in Amsterdam. You know, it's not easy. Some kick, some are able to get clean and get on with their lives. Some die young, some stay addicted to methadone and suboxone their whole lives and really can't do very much and are somewhat disabled. And then a small group of people for whom, like, you know, they really don't need to go to prison, but the methadone's not working for them. And they just were really, they will do crazy things to get heroin. Then you would allow a safe injection facility for them. But they've been worked through the process. They've been, they've had a caseworker who has tried to help them get off drugs and into rehab. And it hasn't worked. And it's a tiny number of people. But that's completely different from what they're doing, I think, in probably Dublin too. I mean, if you're having large, large queues of people, that's not great. 
Like that's not what you don't want that. And you also don't want to concentrate users. You want to really spread them out over broader areas. And so that's why I argue for spreading this across the state. And that really, and this will interest you as also somebody that's come from the left. My proposal for Cal Psych is basically universal psychiatric care. You know, basically requires the role of the state. There's no market for people with schizophrenia. There's no market for most addicts and just has to be provided by the state. And so it's the part of the book probably that conservatives or libertarians will have the hardest time with, but which I just kind of think is, is just absolutely necessary to addressing the problem. Spiked is producing more brilliant content than ever. The best way to keep up with everything we do is by signing up for our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all Spiked's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spiked team. So to never miss a thing, go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. I think one of the issues is the way in which the state often ends up becoming the drug dealer. And I don't even think that's what it intends to be. I mean, this is this is pronounced in some parts of Western Europe, and I'm sure it will come to the US at some point. But because there is this crisis taking place, the state thinks, what can we do about it? And one of the solutions it comes up with is, well, let's provide them with a safer form of the drug in a safe environment, which will make it a little bit better. And and, and you substantiate one form of abusive relationship with another, and that becomes problematic. But I think one of the instigators of that, and I want to move on now to the question of, I guess, the question of law and judgment and the importance of law and judgment, uh, judgment in the social moral sense and law in the legal sense, uh, and and how the undermining of those two things means that progressive politicians have lost their way. So you've touched upon the fact that you will often have people saying to you, well, Michael, who are you to judge this guy on the street who's shooting up on the street corner and, and living in a very dilapidated condition? You don't understand his past. You don't understand what he's going through. How can you make these kinds of judgments? And I think one of the problems we face with what is presented to us as progressive politics these days is the jettisoning of any form of judgment or any sense that there might be a better way to live and that it might be good to assist people to try and achieve that better way of living. So one of the things you talk about in your book is that some democratic officials uh, in the United States have essentially stopped enforcing laws So they've stopped enforcing laws in relation to drug addiction. They've stopped enforcing laws in relation to Antifa and anarchists who've taken it. People in Europe have looked at that with real shock and horror when you have Antifa activists uh, marauding through the streets and pretty much doing what they want. So how much do you think this is a problem of relativism? and an unwillingness to take a strong position and an unwillingness to to enforce laws which after all are democratically constituted and and instead this desire to allow people to do whatever they want to do yes well you are really asking the right questions um yes (laughs) (laughs) what you said uh absolutely It's complex. I mean, there's complexity here. It required a book. 
Um, I did have one person say, you know, it could have been a long essay. I just really don't agree. This is a real book that you have to, I mean, I'm glad there was somebody that thinks that he could, I would love it if someone could summarize it. But for me, there is a lot going on here. I mean, some of it is definitely American. We're very manic. I mean, a lot of the people that came here were very manic and libertarian. You know, the people, people, think about it, people came here, you know, these are were genetically destined from people that were, you know, um, hyperactive and aggressive and wild. And the wildest part of the United States has always been the West. So, you know, people would say to me, they go, when I started doing this research, they go, yeah, it's the wild West out here, man. And I'd be like, shut up. That's just so, come on. You know what I mean? Like, you'd be like, whatever. By the time I was done writing the book, I was like, it is the wild west out here, man. There's a lot of laws that don't get enforced. A lot of arbitrary rule. I mean, it was like, it is like Brazil in that way, but completely different. Or India in some ways, but totally different in terms of the patronage. It's ideological networks, not patronage networks. It's affiliation along kind of radical left ideology, which you're right. It's like, Basically, it's yeah, it's been a competition for decades to be like, who could demonstrate that they were most on the side of victims? And so it's like, like the woman that said that I'm cause, I'm going to cause violence against homeless people. She goes, one of the things she said is she goes, she was just like, well, I was like, what about the guy just defecating in the street? Like, how is that even compatible with city life? You know, <laughs> and she goes, she goes, but Michael. I could just tell this was like a line that she had said a lot over her whole life, like for probably 20 years or whatever, ever since she went to her elite, you know, private liberal arts school in the East or wherever she went, you know, it was like, Michael, but what about that person's life? You know, what about the trauma they experienced as kids? You know, I mean, one thing I point out in the book and I go through and it's why you need a book is I was just like, I just take every claim that they make seriously so I just document the decline of trauma. Like it's basically the history of, I mean, it all for me is like this transition from country to city understandably made us softer and it made parents, you know, more um, loving and maternal and less strict and spare the rod, spoil the child. That was something that they've been worried about for a long time. And we're just clearly in these really advanced stages of it where we, you know, do what, Jordan Peterson calls the devouring mother over everything. I mean, everything's devouring mother, parents, teachers, um, social workers. I mean, the social worker, and then they get, I'm having some people on Twitter do this to me right now. Michael, you just have to talk to them. You just have to hear what they want. You have to hear what they want. I'm like, well, I listen to them and they're like, leave me the fuck alone so I can use fentanyl, dude. That's what they're saying. And I don't think that, you know, you have to be a really cynical person for me to be like, yeah, that person is their highest self when they're telling me they just want to smoke fentanyl. Like it involves, relativism is such an interesting word. You know, I don't quite use it. I mean, for me, it all stems from just the continuing, it's coddling plus secularization, just the death of God. Nobody believes in God, so they have no moral anchoring. They think the Old Testament is just completely cruel as opposed to having some rules in it upon which society requires for basic functioning. You mentioned there, or you made an assumption, which I think is probably a very accurate one, that the person who said to you, oh, Michael, stop enacting violence against homeless people. You made an assumption that that person probably went to a particular university, probably comes from a particular uh, background, uh, probably right now lives a pretty privileged existence. And I think you're probably right in all of those 
uh, judgments. Yeah. So I want to ask you about how much do you think this is a class issue or, or brings in, I mean, I know us Brits tend to be over obsessed with class and Americans sometimes look at us with, um, bemusement, yeah. but you do seem to have a situation in the US like we do in the UK where you have incredibly painfully privileged elites, woke elites who live in lovely apartment blocks and have lovely lives and don't have shit on their doorstep, excuse my language, and don't have children who take drugs on the streets, their children tend to do pretty well too, who then look at sections of society who have fallen through the net and who have gone to the other side of, of living a kind of existence that you and I and most people would consider to be deeply, deeply unpleasant and scary. So to what extent is this a, a, an elite section of society that's just thinking, well, I don't have to live like this, but it's okay if other people do. And I'm going to justify that by saying, well, that's their way of life. That's their expression of their past trauma. That's how they make sense of their, of their upbringing or, or their racial oppression or their social oppression. Is this just what we talk about as progressive politics? Is it really just an extraordinarily cavalier approach by sections of the elite to those other sections of society that genuinely need our help? Yes, exactly that. You described it perfectly. What is it? It's the opposite of noblesse oblige. Yeah. <laughs> it's the opposite of white man's burden. It's like white man's unburdened. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just got to put a Black Lives Matter sign in my window and I'm all set. Yeah. I vote Democrat. I vote progressive. I put a Black Lives Matter sign in my yard. I might have put up a sign about how we have to be pro-science. Just all the usual progressive nonsense while you basically you know, vote for people that that demand the non-treatment or the ill-treatment of mentally ill and drug-addicted people of color, disproportionately poor and disproportionately victimized, no doubt about it. I mean, I'm not arguing that people aren't victimized that are on the street, you know, just that levels of abuse and trauma have declined while this problem has increased, suggesting that the problem is more a consequence of coddling and prosperity than it is of poverty and abuse. Yeah, I mean, what you said is exactly right. Um, it's pretty dark, man. Um, it's pretty, I wish I could just be like, no, um, my white rich neighbors up here in the Berkeley Hills really care about this issue and are really grappling with it deeply. No, they shield themselves from it. I mean, I, after spending two years on this, I don't feel moral living here. I don't feel moral paying taxes. I feel immoral. I feel, I feel. I feel tarnished by my state in the same way that I think of how people in South Africa felt during apartheid and maybe currently, by the way. But nonetheless, I don't feel I feel this is wrong. You know, I'm still very progressive in some ways. I'll pay the high taxes. We have the highest taxes in the country on most ways. I'll pay them. But then I want to see my brothers and sisters on the street treated rather than treated like garbage. You know, I want to see that happen. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously, this book is a is upset. This book is angry. I'm I'm upset. I'm leading protests with parents whose kids are addicted to fentanyl on the streets and could die any day from the drugs that the city is helping them to use. Um, it's outrageous. 
And it's, yeah, it's, it's a consequence of a very ideological culture. Very, I mean, the amount of ideological bubbles and the ways in which progressives, now there is politics and, you know, you're, we're having this conversation the day after a major election in the United States where a Republican um, came from behind on this issue of victimology and political correctness. The Republican won in Virginia, which was perceived to be very democratic. So there is reality is intruding. I actually find my mood improved in recent days. I think the complete catastrophe at climate change talks, what a joke it's been, the fact that we're in a global energy crisis because of overinvestment in renewables and underinvestment of fossil fuels, I feel more optimistic. But yeah, I mean, San Francisco is really about how progressives construct a moral justification for what are obviously, obviously immoral policies. I think you've outlined there very well what I think is a kind of almost a system of neo-feudalism and what you have are, uh, and, and we have this in different ways in Europe too, but you have a section of society that, that derives its moral authority and its financial clout, because they're often very well paid, from looking after another section of society that is destitute, on the streets, addicted. And what you end up with is this incredibly dangerous relationship between those two sections of society, because the people who derive their moral authority from the victim script or the idea that people just can't help the way they are, they depend for their moral authority on the continued existence of that section of society. So it's it's very much not in their interest to find a longer term solution, whether that be through law, order, or some other means of, of society rescuing people from destitution. They depend very much for their authority on that not being the case. And so they have this instinctive desire or this instinctive drive to naturalize what to people like me and you is a very unnatural situation, which is the signing off of vast ways of humanity as simply being beyond help. So to, to what extent do you think there are that this is a structural problem and that there are actual incentives to those sections of society that benefit from a sense of authority over uh, uh, the organization of places like San Francisco or London or Dublin. To what extent do you think this is a, that there's a structural barrier to people taking on board the kind of ideas you're pushing, which would be, I think, beneficial for those at the bottom of the ladder? Great question. Massive structural. I mean, we call it the professional managerial class. I think the one question is just whether, you know, if you were to take over, if you were to change the system to be more like Amsterdam or like Netherlands in California, where you're looking to get people towards independence, away from dependence, would it cost less? Would it require fewer people in the professional managerial class? I don't know. I mean, there's some days where I just think the system is much more expensive because it's so inefficient than it would need to be if you actually tried to get people the care they needed. I definitely have other people who I really respect who disagree and think the system would be more expensive. It's un, I, I, I became very clear very early on that it was unknowable, both because of definitional reasons and defining what mental ill spending went into in California and how much of it was for homeless. Plus, how do you count you know, all the fire services? Because about half of the fires in L.A. now are caused by homeless people. So for sure, there's definitely that. You know, there's also... Um, The classic thing, you know, the old debate around how much of it is ideological and how much of it is material, you know, and what's interesting about it is 
In this case, the lumpen, the, you know, Marxists used to call this the lumpen proletariat, the, all the what we call homeless, you know, street addicts, these street scenes, people that are not working and just living as really dependents on the state um, or to some extent on, on private supporters, whether family or the sector. But it's been produced by the society, not by capitalism. It's not like these 25-year-olds that are addicted to heroin couldn't have a job somewhere. I mean, in fact, there's huge demand for 25-year-old people, you know, that are educated and and even not. I mean, just there's just there's plenty. Of, this is a high economic growth area. There's plenty of work, you know. So it's not like this is structural in the sense that there's no demand for their labor. It is structural in the sense that that there's so much darn money in the system, including from parents who, you know, you can just, I just know a lot of, I know parents with kids that are addicts on the street that just support their kids because they have the money and they can afford to. One of the questions is always with these situations is how much do the parents need to cut the kids off? But yes, it is structural in the sense we're dealing with late capitalist prosperity, wealth, but it's not a consequence of the traditional Marxist or neo-Marxist idea that there's some lack of demand for their labor. Okay, before we move on, I want to ask you about one more uh, aspect of progressives screwing up cities in the United States, which is Antifa. Anti-fascists, I don't think they should be called anti-fascists because I think that's a, a very noble uh, political tradition, which they should have no claim over. Right. However, these kind of, you know, TikTok revolutionaries or these masked middle classes, middle classes mean something different in the UK than it does in the, I guess, upper middle classes, these kind of um, black clad supposed anti-fascists who have taken over sections of certain cities, particularly Portland. And that's something that I think has, you know, beyond the problem of drug addiction in San Francisco and Los Angeles and other parts of the US, which unfortunately doesn't make global headlines very often, the Antifa situation has. And that is something that people have looked upon with complete bemusement. So in terms of the the allowance of that kind of thing to happen and the allowance, the, the, the permission almost that is given to those campaign groups or those activists to take over certain streets, to enact certain measures, to create autonomous zones, as they refer to them. To what extent do you think that reveals that there is not just a kind of I guess, a relativistic approach amongst progressives, but also a political approach. To, to, so to what extent do you think it is a situation where progressive leaders of cities share some agreement with those political campaigners, or at least share in some of their prejudices about Trump voters or anti-woke sections of American society or whatever else it might be? Do you think there's sometimes a commonality between these agitators and the progressives who run cities, which allows Antifa, for example, to take ownership of, of parts of Portland and other parts of the US. Yes, you got it. That's exactly how it occurs. Absolutely. It's not just sympathy. It's they work directly together. Progressive city council members work directly with the anarchists who mislabel themselves anti-fascist, but the right word is anarchist. That's what they called themselves before they rebranded themselves <laughs> Um, and they're anarchists in every way. I mean, I, by the way, was there when the Black Bloc was smashing windows in Seattle in 1999. This is a group I know very well. I know anarchists. I know anarchism. 
Um, <laughs> you know, when I was a socialist and a Marxist, I would argue with the anarchists. So, of course, yeah. I, yeah. it's a very recognizable phenomenon. Now, I'm very, pr- well, I'm very proud of a scene in the book. It's a set piece. And because right, I'm the first person to have gotten the full story of how Seattle turned over several city blocks downtown to the anarchists. I got the first story from the first female black police chief who was forced out after shutting it down. But she was baffled by it and she was talking to the FBI and they were like, what is this? Like that had just never occurred that the city council would muscle the mayor to abandon a police precinct building in a neighborhood, turn it over to completely unaccountable, out of touch, white, mostly white, (laughs) violent, armed anarchists. That is actually what occurred. When you say it like that, it's shocking. Oh, did I mention they brought in the street addicts we misdescribe as homeless to sort of serve as, you know, really just peep bodies. I hate to say it like that, but that's what they, I think the way they thought of them as bodies to put in this area. Women got raped. Finally, two black kids get killed and they shut, and it, the police chief had to fight her way into getting legal permission to shut it down. That's the level at which at that point you kind of go, wow, it is Wild West. I mean, that's just, that's all that is. But it comes from an ideology. It doesn't come from there being an absence of society. So it's civilization destroying itself, destroying its own institutions. And I see this pattern. We shut down the the mental institutions ideologically without having anything to back it up. They shut down the police without having anything to back it up. Every time they say the same thing, and I say they, the radical left, for the last 75 years, they say, well, we'll replace it with this Rousseauian alternative. It's never been, they never build it in advance. They just tear it down, usually in a moral panic that they then gin up with the less hardcore, but more like bleeding heart liberals. I mean, so there are two groups in the sense that there's a very canny, very ideological group of leaders and activists, almost sociopathic, if not sociopathic, in their disregard for human life. And then there's just the regular bleeding heart liberals like my my bougie neighbors in the Berkeley Hills who vote for them as candidates because they just say they just use all the right propaganda words and they push all the right propaganda buttons. So, yeah, I mean, that's the basic manipulation. Are you looking for the perfect gift for the pro-freedom, anti-woke person in your life? Then look no further than the Spiked Shop. You can now get your favourite Spiked slogan on a t-shirt, hoodie, tote bag or mug, including ban nothing, question everything, love Europe, hate the EU and cancel cancel culture. And if you're a Spike supporter, you get a 15% discount on everything in the shop. Just go to spiked-online.com slash shop to browse our items and make your purchases. That's spiked-online.com slash shop. Michael, we could talk about San Francisco for a long time because it's a really, really good book and everyone should read it. Uh, But it would be remiss of me not to ask you about the contemporary discussions around COP26 because the last time we spoke was about your book, Apocalypse Never, Why Environmental Alarmism Hurts Us All. So I wanted to get a, just ask you a couple of questions about what's currently being talked about in Glasgow in COP26. Greta Thunberg has arrived and world leaders have arrived. The planet is apparently still on fire. We have, I don't know, eight years, seven years, three years. I've lost track. 
to save the world. So there has been a ratcheting up of the kind of apocalypticism that you have taken down. And, and one thing that you've argued before very effectively, I think, is that for too long, the climate change discussion has kind of flitted between the denialists on one side who think everything's absolutely fine and the apocalyptists on the other who think that the world is going to end in 10 years' time. So are you observing COP26? What do you think about what's happening there? And where do you think that discussion is at the moment? I, I think, um, yeah, the elites are are somewhere between being completely delusional about what's happening, both in terms of climate change. I mentioned in a piece today for Unheard that emissions have declined 26% in Europe, 22% in the United States since 2005. We're in a coal-to-gas transition. The, it's, the, it's the climate activists that have created a global energy crisis. Meanwhile, they fly in private, 400 private jets, a record number of private jets. It's you know, it's all of the, you know, um, douchebags, you know, in a single conference, <laughs> you know, I kind of go, I tweeted yesterday and I was only, you know, I was sort of experimenting intellectually on Twitter. I'm not sure I believe all of it, but you know, you kind of go, are they really that tone deaf or are they actually, is this a kind of performance of performing their superiority in the neo-feudal way that you're describing? I mean, remember the feudalism was really full of pageantry. Mm -hmm. There's so much pageantry here, a self-celebration, the narcissism, the histrionics. And of course, all of their agendas falling apart around them. I mean, they couldn't even get a ban on financing coal plants, which was like low-hanging fruit given the gas revolution. Chinese Premier Xi and uh, President Putin did not come. But meanwhile, China's announcing a huge build-out of nuclear power plants. So, you know, what matters on climate change is just using gas and nuclear. That's really all that matters. That's it. All of this other garbage around renewables and, you know, basically making energy expensive is just, you know, while flying around in private jets is just uh, is just neo-feudalism like you've described, you know, and I, it's hard to be like after Prince Harry and Meghan Markle were just raked over the coals in 2019 by the media and hated by the public for them to go do the exact same thing <laughs> this fall, flying back from a climate conference in private jets you have to kind of be like, are they really that stupid or are they actually just saying, you know what, we're not hypocrites. We just follow a different set of rules yeah. than you. I've been asking myself the same thing over the past few days because obviously this COP26 is happening in the UK in one of our major cities in Glasgow. Um, so we've got wall-to-wall -wall coverage here. And the optics are so unbelievably dreadful. So you have, as you say, 400 private jets. We had Joe Biden driving around Rome at the G20 in an 85-car convoy and then flying to uh, Glasgow in, a, in Air Force One. Prince Charles is at COP26, and he's saying, well, everyone needs to tighten their belts and save the planet. This is a guy whose family, the royal family, has flown enough air miles over the past five years to get to the moon and back and then around the Earth's equator three times. I mean, that's extraordinary. Most of us couldn't do that in 50 lifetimes. So there's an extraordinary level of hypocrisy and decadence and stupidity that's going on. So I've been asking myself a similar question. It, are they just that stupid or have they now reached a level where they simply don't care about the disconnect between their way of thinking and our way of thinking. But one thing that you've written about very well, and we've talked about it before, is the extent to which this has become 
there's a religious atmosphere around the climate change issue. So as you say, there is a problem. It's a problem that's relatively easily resolved through the use of gas and particularly through the use of nuclear. And those things should be promoted as much as possible. And yet you still have this constant promotion of the climate change alarmism, the end of the world, this apocalyptic vision. And you've argued that environmentalism or climate change alarmism rather has become a kind of a set of false gods for lost souls. And to what extent do you think COP26 is is confirming your view of the role that that ideology plays in some people's lives? Yeah, well, it's such a fascinating case because you get to see the ways in which the the beautiful ways in which people are both blind and aware of their behaviors. Yeah. So the client, the people who say the world is coming to an end from climate change oppose natural gas and nuclear, even though natural gas and nuclear are why emissions have declined by a quarter in Europe and the United States basically over the last 15 years. So obviously they don't care about emissions. Obviously they don't really care about climate. They're pursuing a, 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 a different agenda, but they themselves, I mean, on the one hand I go, they're flaunting their status. That's what Harry and Megan are doing by flying private back from a climate conference. And they're saying, they're saying F you to all of us um, because it's heavily covered in the media that they do this, yes. right? It's not like a secret. So they're saying F you. And at the same time, like when they get up there with their trembling voices and how like the world is at the brink of disaster, I feel that they mean it. Like their emotion seems to me to be quite true and authentic. And that is where you kind of go, it's all just personal projection when it's no secret it's no coincidence that it's it's former aristocrats who are up there talking about how the world is ending their world is ending their world your aristocratic world they are completely irrelevant to what uganda and china and india and south africa and brazil are doing they're a joke right i mean prince charles says you kind of go that's that guy's ridiculous. Like that guy doesn't have anything to do with what Britain does, um, much less with what the rest of the world does. He's a bit of a, he's a kind of a sad sack, right? He's a kind of sad figure. You don't kind of go, we need leadership in the world. We're going to go to Prince Charles. <laughs> I mean, for fuck's sake, no, no, no Brits on board with that much less no American or Chinese. <laughs> and so then you go, we're in a real collapse of leadership. Then when president Biden says at his press conference, I've been taking advice from Prince Charles. It's like, wow, you are, the West is committing suicide. (laughs) You're just like, that's it. Like if the, you know, the head of the free world goes, I'm taking advice from Prince Charles on global management. You're just like, oh my God, it's over, right? You just kind of go, that can't last. And the repudiation of Democrats that occurred yesterday and is going to just be even more sweeping in a year means that the changing global order it's changing fast. Yeah. You know, I think we're in for some very, very rapid changes. The change, the Brexit, the election of Trump. I think that this last gasp of progressivism, it's being repudiated in a massive way. And it's going to get even, we're just the beginning of the woke lash and it's going to extend it. It's going to last for years. Yeah, absolutely. And I think your, uh, your description of the, you know, it's not a coincidence that it's, it's the old aristocrats who are and the new aristocrats as well, in fact, the woke aristocracy. Amazon's Jeff Bezos. Exactly. Bill Gates. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. These are the people raging against the contemporary world and trying to rein in as much as possible what they see as problematic developments. 
And if you look back in history, you know, it, it, it was the aristocrats and the landed gentry and the royalty who raged against the Industrial Revolution. They didn't like that either. It. And and yep. they don't like what's happening right now. So in, in many ways, it's the kind of, I see it as the revenge of the aristocracy against modernity. And, that, and environmentalism often has that feel to it, which is why it lends itself so beautifully to Prince Charles trying to create a new role for himself in the world, also to Harry and Meghan and, and other people too. Okay, I've got a million more questions for you, but let's. Uh, but I've only got time for one more. So I want to end on a more positive note. And I want to talk, just ask you about nuclear power because nuclear power gets such an incredibly bad rap. It's seen as this awful thing. It's argued against even by Greens who don't recognize what a revolutionary role it would have in terms of providing clean energy, abundant energy. It's not really a focal point of COP26 at all. Certainly you won't hear Prince Charles banging the drum for the creation of more and more nuclear plants. So even though we live in a world of many, many complicated problems, some of which we've been talking about in this podcast, isn't the solution to the climate change issue relatively simple? And wouldn't it benefit humankind to an extraordinary degree if we pursued nuclear power in a meaningful way? Of course. I mean, nuclear is the only way to make society sustainable. It means we can live high energy lives and reduce our negative environmental impacts so naturally, environmentalists are against it because that's not what they're about. Mm-hmm. They're about taking down Western civilization. They're about destroying the basis of it, which is cheap, reliable energy. So naturally, the aristocracy is joined in on this attack on the really the basic driver of civilization, which is cheap energy. Yeah, nuclear is obviously the key. I mean, um, I thought it was interesting, you know, uh, that Chinese Premier Xi did not go to climate talks, but instead they announced... 150 new nuclear reactors, you know, a half trillion dollars almost for nuclear in China. Russia's going big into nuclear along with gas, getting more control over Europe as it has a second pipeline of gas open up and it's exercising that control as we speak. So nuclear becomes the only way for Europeans to achieve their own economic and energy and national security. So they're not dependent on imported energy. Similarly, in Asia, the United States has a lot of its own gas. So we're a bit more like some combination of Russia and Europe um, just because of our continent size. But certainly nuclear is going to come back in a big way. I mean, you know, you see Japan, France, Britain, all recommitting to nuclear. As soon as the energy crisis hit, Emmanuel Macron, the, the president of France, of course, posts this beautiful Twitter video. Your, your listeners should watch it. or you, I don't know if you've seen it. You know, La Reve Possible, where he said the dream is possible. And it's a beautiful video about nuclear's role in French greatness. Mm. It's little snippets of, of just everything from rockets and jets and trains, high energy world, Marie Curie, women's liberation, heart transplants, DNA research, really fast cuts, beautiful, inspiring music. And I was like, yeah, that is the future. And, it, and you see it embraced now by the center left you know, in France in the form of Macron, I think the, I think the center right, and he's responding to pressure from the right. I think as the right continues to beat the nuclear drum, it's going to succeed politically. Michael, thank you very much indeed. It's great being with you, Brendan.
Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.